natural abilities, this means, and, and follow me, true, good, healthy relationships must only happen within a spirit-controlled life. He says, that means a natural man can produce, then good, healthy relationships are outside of our natural abilities. Good, healthy relationships can only come from a spirit-controlled life. And I'll tell you what, I have learned in all of my relational failures, they all trace back to this, this one root cause, that Wolford was operating in the flesh and wasn't allowing his life to be operated and controlled by the Lord's Spirit. It all comes down to this. When I try to operate in my flesh, broken relationships happen. When I operate in the Spirit, real good relationships happen. And all of my failures can be boiled down to just Wolford operating according to Wolford's natural abilities and not Wolford according, operating according to the spirit that God has put inside me. So, that's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'd like to share tonight are, are some of my past relationship failures. Um, in particular, I'm going to share some failures with you in my marriage and also in my past ministry life. And my hope is that you'll really see not just how jacked up Wolford was, Maybe not even how jacked up Wolford was at all, but maybe that you'll see how amazing of a God that we serve and that he rescued and he corrected and he restored me through all of that stuff. That's really what I want you to get out of tonight. It's just the amazingness of the Lord and his ability to just rescue us through any circumstance that we're in, including jacked up broken relationships. Now the goal is that you can see how God can do that. And God wants to do that, right? Because he actually cares about our relationships with each other. He really does. He cares about that. Now, I do have a disclaimer, though. Not at any time tonight does anything I say apply to what I'll call toxic relationships. A toxic relationship would be any relationship that God doesn't want in your life. Anything that I say tonight does not apply to toxic relationships at all. Uh, that's completely outside of the scope of all of this. I'm talking about the relationships that God wants us to have in our life. So... That said, we'll just dive, dive into this if you're, if you're all right with that. And I still don't think this thing is working, but it's okay. Can you all hear me okay? Am I actually yelling? I can never tell if my, head, my, my, um, my hearing aids, I've got hearing aids, that's how old I am. <laughs> that was the best joke I had tonight. If that didn't Okay, so this, we'll call this Life lessons learned in failure. Wolford's failure. Lesson number one. Um, here's what I learned. And this should be on your, on your notes. Um, I think we need to always remember. Always remember and never forget this. That God is still. God is still in the miracle business. God is still in the miracle business. We see it in the, New, the Old Testament. God's doing miracles all over the place. We see it in the New Testament. God's doing miracles all over the place. Look. I don't see anything that says that God stopped doing miracles. As a matter of fact, I know he still does miracles. You know why? Because he miraculously saved a marriage that I wrecked. Miraculously saved. The deal is, is my wife and I have been married today for, we're going on 19 years in July. Um, we've been together about 20 and a half years. And I would say, so we, we, we met um, just a, a short while after I got saved and we got engaged early on. Uh, and I would, so we did the whole fall in love thing, right? And I would say today that we have, a, we have a decent relationship. Things are pretty good. I would say, actually, we're, we're kind of in a sweet spot. 
Um, and, and it's nice, you know, but I mean, if I can be pretty transparent with you, it wasn't always that way. Um, the fact is, the first 12 years of my wife and I's marriage was a nightmare. It was, it was an awful wreck. Um, maybe I could sum it up this way. If my wife was standing up here with me right now, and you asked us, knowing what you know now, if you guys could go back in time, would you still get married? And we wouldn't be able to answer you, honestly. And if we did say yes, we certainly wouldn't go back and do it the same dumb way that we did it. Because we jacked up a lot of stuff. We had a lot of problems early on. And it traces back to two real problems in our lives. First, we had two totally different personalities. And second, we were super, super spiritually immature. We had no business getting married when we did. Now, from a personality standpoint, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not overcoming, right? It's not insurmountable. But man, if, if, who knows my wife in here? Raise your hand. Okay, if you know me and my wife, and you probably know something right off the bat, that she and I are polar opposites in terms of personality. And I mean polar opposites. My wife, my wife loves order, she loves control, she loves a good plan, everything has a place, and everything needs to be in its place. And it gets so bad that, I mean, she probably could have been diagnosed with, with OCD at some point. Um, but it gets so bad, if anything's out of order, it really physiologically messes my life up. She's a nervous wreck when chaos is introduced in her life. I am all chaos. 100%. I thrive in chaos and disorder. I prefer it. Matter of fact, when there's too much order, I feel oppressed, and I feel like my free spirit is getting, like, clenched. You put those two together in a daily relationship, just the logistics are a nightmare. How to keep a clean house. Who does the dishes when? How do we pay the bills? My wife is like, we need to plan for the bills early. I'm like, pay them whenever the pink notice shows up. It's yeah. all right. <laughs> just that alone is a nightmare for a relationship. It's, it's difficult to overcome those things. But you can. The one thing, though, that really crushed us, crushed us was our differences, our, our spiritual immaturities. My wife and I, would, I would say, and she would agree with me if she was standing up here today, um, we were not ready for marriage. We had no business getting married. And, and the worst part is, is my spiritual immaturities and her spiritual immaturities were like the counter opposite of each other. And so when, when her flesh kicked in or when my flesh kicked in, they were a catalyst to the other one's flesh kicking in. Let me explain it like this. When we got married, I didn't know anything about leadership. And I mean nothing about leadership. I didn't know anything about sacrifice. I didn't know anything about love. I didn't know anything about compassion to my wife and how to be sympathetic to her, compassionate, and to, and to understand, her, understand her needs. I knew nothing. My idea of leadership was Wolford makes a decision for his family without consulting his wife and then barks that decision out as a command to my wife and expect her to jump in line. Ladies, does that sound like an awesome relationship to you? <laughs> no, it's not. That's, that's, that's what Wolford does when he, when he acts in his flesh in the marriage. And I, didn't, I, didn't just, I just didn't know anything else. I couldn't even barely spiritually feed myself. I would, I would make the case that my wife was spiritually leading me. I had no business trying to lead anybody else. To counterbalance that, when my wife operated in her flesh, her flesh told her when things get chaotic, I eat all Wolford. 
When things get chaotic, she needs to she needs to try to fight for control. And when someone's oppressive to her, she wants to resist that, which is pretty much the opposite of submission. And so check this out. I would be making decisions in a vacuum without her. I would be barking these out as a command to her. This would come across the table to her, and all she would hear is, chaos has come into my world. This man is oppressive and abusive to me. Just mentally, psycho psychologically, there was like no abuse, abuse. But in her flesh, it would rear up and say, I'm not comfortable with this at all. And so she would res resist the direction that I was giving. And my immaturity, I would see that as, well, you know what? She didn't understand what I was asking her to do or the direction that I wanted to set. So maybe I wasn't being clear enough. Maybe I wasn't being forceful and direct enough. I wasn't establishing enough authority. And so I'd come back and I'd be like, I'd be more direct and more aggressive and, and more authoritative. <laughs> which she would in turn interpret as more oppressive, more chaotic, and would resist that. And we would go through this cycle over and over again until it would just explode into a nightmare of a relationship. Day after day after day, the same thing over and over again. And our marriage was a nightmare. We fought constantly, constantly. You ask anybody that knew us personally, and they would tell you, Wolford and Wendy are just fighting like crazy. If you were to ask my kids, my kids would tell you that they cried themselves to sleep more nights than they got a peaceful night. It was bad. It was awful. And the time where we weren't fighting, man, it was like it was like the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia. If you were around us, you were just waiting for somebody to press that that red button and launch those nuclear codes and missiles or whatever. It was awful. We, we tried to get help. We did the whole crying out to the Lord thing. Trying to help, you know, we're, we're like, Lord, save our marriage. Because by the, way, by the way, all this is happening internally with us and our family. On the outside, we're both involved in ministry. <coughs> ministry. We're up in front of people, leading people. And all this is going on on the side of the background, tearing our lives apart. And so we, we got pastoral counseling, we got professional counseling, and we, we joined like groups and we tried to read the, the books and the love and respect and we tried, to, we tried to learn how to fight fair with all the counseling cards that they have and none of it was working for us. In fact, I had a guy, I had a pastor, the guy that led me to the Lord and was a good man. But he actually sat me down after counseling with my wife and I and he looked me in the eyes and he said, Wolford, when I think about your marriage, I think about a car wreck. Some car wrecks, man, you just... You just file with the insurance company, and they come out, they, they repair some damage, cut your check, you get it fixed, you're back on the road in no time, you're good to go. But some car wrecks are so bad, so awful, that the only thing that you can do is total out the car. And he looks at me and he goes, Wolfram, when I think about your marriage, dude, I see a total wreck. And I'm like, well, that sucks. <laughs> That's awful. And so my wife and I decided to do the unthinkable. We rationalized in our head, <coughs> rather than, and, and, and hopefully you get how jacked up this is, we rationalized in our head that God, instead of, instead of having to put up with our 1,000 sins of day of envy, strife, and bitterness, and hatred, that he would be more okay with us committing the one big sin of divorce. We came to the place where like, okay, rather than us do this for the rest of our life, God would rather have us be divorced. 
And that's how mentally ill we work. Because God, God hates divorce. Hates it. And so we file for divorce. And in Indiana, you, when you file for divorce, you have a 60-day, a, a mandatory 60-day waiting period uh, before they'll grant you the divorce. And we went through everything where we divided up all the assets. My wife had moved out. She was living in a different place. We, we divided up the kids and the time and went through the whole rigmarole. And it sucked. It sucked bad, man. And 17 days away from the gavel coming down, the weirdest thing happened. I'm in, I'm in Miami Beach, Florida. And uh, I'm getting ready to fly out to St. Lucia for my brother's wedding. It's a Sunday morning. I hadn't talked to my wife for a while. And uh, she calls me up. And I, and I answer my phone. I'm like, what's up? And she's like, man, can I talk to you a minute? I was like, yeah, here, here we go. <laughs> you know? And she goes, look, man, I was, in, uh, I was in church this morning. And she goes, I just really felt like the Lord was speaking to me and saying, don't do this thing. And I was like, whoa. You got my attention. She's like, Lord just told me, don't, don't do this thing. And she said, she said something that just made my heart break. She said, I love you. And man, my heart just gushed out. And, and I saw the Lord. I'll try to hold it together. Um, I saw the Lord do miracle. Um, so immediately, like right there, my heart would change. And we decided to commit to sticking this thing out and doing things the right way. And so lesson number one that I learned is God is still in the miracle business, man. He still does miracle miracles. And I know that because he miraculously came in and saved my marriage. And so I've obviously had a lot of time to think about that since, since then. And, and something I've learned about miracles because you know, I often ask myself, and I ask the Lord, hey, you know, in the 12 years that our marriage really sucked, I mean, I probably cried out to you 15,000 times, and you didn't come in and save my marriage. Why? Why didn't you do that, you know? That's something else I've learned, and I think this is the next bullet point. What I've learned is that God performs a miracle when he gets the glory. God performs miracles when he gets the glory. And I say that, so if you look, if, if you were to look and say John chapter 2, verse 11, we're told this is when Jesus turned water into wine, right? He did this miracle. We're told this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. John chapter 2, verse 23, we're told, now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Luke 5, 24. When the disciples let down a crippled man from the group, they just torn a hole in so he healed. healed. Before Jesus heals the dude, he says this. He says, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And I can't get away from this. That every time I see the Lord doing a miracle in Scripture, everything, all the attention, he becomes the center of it all. Everything points to him. And so when I think, Lord, why, why did you say, why did you do this miraculous thing 12 years earlier? Well, because maybe, maybe he wouldn't have gotten the glory. Maybe I needed to come to the end of myself, which I find often, by the way, that I have to come to the end of myself before the Lord can really step in. Because sometimes that's the only time that he'll get the glory. 
Because I'm prone in my simple nature to take the glory from the Lord. And if there's any, if there's any last-ditch hope effort that Wolford could do something right, you guarantee my flesh is going to try to try to cry out and take the glory like what, what, what Wolford did. did. But, but, but God performs a miracle when he can get the glory. Something else I learned. This is going to sound really weird. So you'll have to walk through this with me. Miracles, in terms of relationships, miracles aren't always the best solution when you're going to say, by the way. Miracles aren't always the best solution for relationships. Now, let me walk you through this. I know this sounds kind of weird. But we know that once we get saved, the Lord's plan for us is to do what? Grow up and become spiritually mature adults who can bear fruit. Does anybody disagree with that? We're, we're told that in 2 Peter, right? Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. We're told that besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, that's a bright neon light saying that the purpose in our lives after we get saved is to grow up spiritually and become adults. Agree? Yeah. Now, check it out. The Lord devoted an entire book in the Bible to teach us how to do relationships the right way. I think you guys probably went through Ephesians a little bit during your relationship, relationship series, right? Now, maybe I'm just too simple-minded. But maybe, maybe God... Because he wants us to grow up spiritually and become mature adults, and maybe he, maybe he gave us this whole book on how to do relationships right, maybe he did that because he wants us to do the relationships right. If he continually comes in and saves us miraculously, what does that keep us from doing? The word. Growing up. By the way, in the drug ministry... If a parent continues to come in and save their kids from the consequences of their decision, you know what I call them? An enabler. So I would say that a miracle is not always the best solution when relationships are concerned. And now, I'll be the first to tell you, praise God that he stepped in and saved my, saved my marriage. But you know what? You know what would have been a better solution? A better solution would have been for my wife and I to grow up and for me to learn how to love her and for her to learn how to respect me. And for us to get over those stupid spiritual immaturities and become adults who know how to do a relationship and make the tough decisions. Or better yet, the best thing would have been for her and I to, to never get married in the first place until we got all those things worked out. As a matter of fact, I wish we would have had somebody in our lives that would have told us, Wolfer, wake up, man. You are not ready for marriage. It would have saved 12 years of heartache in my life. And by the way, when my wife and I did get back together, when, when God did that miracle, guess what? We still had to learn how to be married. We still had to grow up. And it was difficult. It wasn't easy. I think we're still working on it. Sometimes our flesh comes back, but things today are infinitely better than they were. So God can still do miracles. But man, miracles aren't always the best option for relationships. That was life lesson number one. God is still in miracle business. 
Life lesson number two that I've learned. God's not afraid to let us learn something the hard way. God's not afraid to let us learn something the hard way. Now, man, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I hope you love this and get a kick out of it. For those of you that know my daughter, Leah, she's my youngest kid. She's 12 now. But when she was six years old, she and I were back in, back in our house in Indiana, and we're in the living room, and I'm flying around one of those indoor remote control helicopters. Right? I almost think it's so cool, man. And I'm flying, and she's in the room with me, and I'm flying it over her head, you know, and it's cool. And she starts to reach her finger up to poke it in the blades of the helicopter. And I tell her, I was like, I was like, hey, sweetie, you might not want to do that because that's going to hurt. And she looks at me and just kind of dismisses what I say, and then she sticks her finger up in that blade, and man, that thing clicked her finger so hard. I thought I was going to look down and find half her finger on the floor. I was scared. I was like, oh, parenting fail moment for sure, you know? It didn't. It didn't even draw blood, but she was crying and crocodile tears and super upset, and I go over and I sweep her up, and, and I'm like, I'm like, kid, it's going to be all right, and then I, I asked her, I was like, why didn't you listen to me? And she didn't have an answer. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> this, this, last, this, this last maybe three minutes. She's done crying. I go back and I get the helicopter. And I kid you not. You cannot make this stuff up. That same child took that same finger three seconds after and stuck it up in the plate of the helicopter. And I watched all this unfold. I didn't say a word either. I didn't say nothing. I was sitting there flying and like, Oh my goodness, she's gonna stick her finger in this plate again. And sure enough, what? It hits her finger, and I was like, that is my child. <laughs> <laughs> there, for sure. She comes by that naturally. And I'm like, man, that is totally me. That that really sums up the way I learn. I just learn things the hard way, and sometimes I gotta keep making the same mistake over and over and over again before it really drives home. And you know what I learned about the Lord? He'll let you do that. He'll let you reap the consequences of stupidity so that you can learn a lesson. Now look, man, I got a, I'm not being honest about me, but um, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of ministries since since the second I got saved, which I shouldn't have been. Hands down, I shouldn't have been. But I got saved in February of 1998. Um, and I, almost immediately, I joined worship teams and I was part of worship bands and um, I got involved in itinerant speaking where you just kind of go and share your testimony and give messages and uh, eventually, I started leading youth groups and volunteering youth groups. I became a youth pastor at one point, helped plant some churches and restart some churches, helped set up discipleship ministries and evangelism ministries. And at one point, my wife and I even packed up everything that we had, and we went out to California. We took a uh, full-time youth ministry job and, and really just delved into the ministry. And uh, some parts of it were kind of cool. I mean, I got to lead a lot of people to the Lord. <coughs> But man, if I can be really honest and transparent with you right now, why don't you necessarily judge me? Um, I, can, I can tell you that every, every one of, that I can remember, every one of the ministries that I've ever been a part of tanked miserably in awful discord between me and the senior leadership. Every one of them. You think, you think what happened in this church a year and a half ago was awful? I've been the guy that's caused that. And it sucks. And my heart was so jacked up. Man, I, I can remember being out. I can remember my heart was so jacked up. I was out in California and, and serving in this ministry. And I was in such discord with the senior pastor there that I would willingly be disobedient 
to this guy's setting the direction for the church. He would say, this is what I went to the church to do, Mike, and I love if the youth group got behind it, I would purposely lead the youth group the opposite way. Sunday mornings, when this dude started to preach, I would get up and walk to the back of the church and sit down in the back of the sanctuary, <coughs> letting him know I just didn't like the message he was giving. That's what my heart was. I was jacked up, man. Really jacked up. And the worst thing about it is, now I had over and over again in all the ministries that was that was happening. And I would join these ministries and I would have this, this discord with senior leadership until there was a fallout and I'd go to another ministry. And people would let me go to the ministries, which was jacked up, right? Because I was so immature. And I realized, man, my heart was so far away from where it needed to be. I had some serious issues of pride. I had some serious issues of submission. And I had a serious disrespect for authority. I mean bad disrespect for authority. And it was awful in myself alone. I mean, I don't think I grew hardly at all with the Lord, even though I was trying to get the Bible. I was preaching messages. If you would have looked, I think, at me from a, from a sin, non-sin standpoint, you'd have said, Wolford, you're a wretch, man. You're, you're a wretch, bro. But the worst thing is, is that everybody that was following my ministries, they were a wretch. It wasn't just me that was paying a price. Ironically, the same things that were affecting my marriage, by the way, were the same things that were plaguing my, my ministry. But the worst thing about it was all the people that I affected in my ministry. Realizing that I could, I could lead somebody to the Lord pretty good, but I had zero substance to offer them and zero real relationship with the Lord to offer them to help them grow. And you know what that produces? Orphans. Orphans. And so I had a whole laundry list of orphans that I produced in my life and never really got to see anybody really decide. And you know what that culminates into, by the way? If I can even share this, but let me lose it. The culmination of that, if, if, you, if your heart's jacked up in ministry, and you're good at leading people to the Lord, but you've got no spiritual depth, depth to offer them after that, you know what that culminates into? That culminates into a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from a parent whose kid just sliced his throat. What do you do with that? A kid that I led to the Lord and had no spiritual depth, Thank God he didn't die, but he was planning to. They saved his life. From here to here, he sliced his throat, stabbed himself in the heart. And I'm like, the kid had no hope. That was my job, to come in and help him have hope. But what was I going to tell him? What did I expect him to do, by the way? I mean, I was told he disobedient to my, my leadership. What did I expect him to do? Just follow my footsteps. That's the result. I love to say, so I, I left the ministry for, for a long time um, and haven't been really involved in anything until the beginnings, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little while. But I had a lot of time to process this and a lot of time to grow up with the Lord and a lot of time for the Lord to work on me. I learned a couple of things. First, and I think this is in your notes. That's not in your notes. <coughs> the first was true, true leadership. True leadership comes out of servanthood. I say that because of Mark chapter, uh, yeah, Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. Um, Jesus says, And whosoever of you shall be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto you, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. I hear that, and I, and I think back to my ministry days, and I'm like, oh man, 
I was not in the business. I was not in the ministry to serve anybody. I was in the ministry just because it was something that Wolfram was good at or looked good at or it was cool at the time, but I did not have a service, a service heart. And I, and I neglected to learn one really fundamental thing, that if you can't serve, and if you can't follow, you can't lead. You cannot be effective in leading if you ain't learned to follow, and you ain't learned to serve. <laughs> the deal is, man, true leadership has to be born out of servanthood. <coughs> And I never got that. I get it now. I get it now. Something else I learned um, the other side of, of your notes, and this was the hard one. This was the one that really struck me to the core. Our level of submission to leadership, our level of submission to leadership is a reflection of our heart towards God. I say that because Romans 13, 1 and 2, you might be familiar with it, says this. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. But tack onto that John 14 and 15. And Jesus says, if ye love me, Keep my commandments. And all of a sudden, those two verses together force me to come to the conclusion and ask the question, if I'm willingly disobedient to my leadership, if I'm willingly bucking the system that God has put in place, how can I possibly say that I love Jesus? How can I possibly say that if I'm intentionally going out and doing that? I mean, wouldn't you question my love for Jesus? And that's, that's a hard lesson to learn. That my level of respect and my submission to my leadership is a reflection of my heart towards God. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Today, uh, today I've learned uh, not only to serve my leadership, and my, matter of fact, I've had a lot of years for the Lord to lead this submission and this fight against authority out of me, which is awesome, by the way, that's gone. Um, but today I learned not only to serve my leadership, but as crazy as this probably sounds in this American culture where it's cool to buck authority, uh, I treat my leadership with the same level of respect that I have for the Lord. And I kid you not, if Pastor Jeff came down here and Brocker came down here or Craig or any of the deacons or any of the leaders of the church and said, Wolford, jump. You know what Wolford's going to do? Yeah. He's going to jump. I'm gonna, and while I'm jumping, I'm going to be like, oh, I want you to jump, Chief. And maybe it's going to look stupid, but I know what the antithesis to that is. I know what happens to my ability to serve leadership, and I know what the outcome is when I fall prey to my flesh and I start not obeying my leadership. And now I know the big thing is like, oh, man, what if your leadership asks you to sin? We're not going to do that. That's a dumb question. You know, those guys aren't going to come here and do that. And if they did do that, I wouldn't do it. But that's really not the issue. You ask a question like that, and that really comes out of the flesh, Right? But the deal is, is, is my submission to my leadership is a reflection of my heart towards God. And if God came down here and told me to jump, you better believe I'd say, ah, oh, well, I mean, after I pick myself off the ground because I feel like a dead man, like, like John, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Well, on, on a personal note, I got to share this. I'm probably way over time. I don't know how we're doing, but um, we're, we're almost going to be done. I got one more point. But on a personal note, a couple weeks ago, Jeff preached a message in church. And, uh, and, and part of it had to do with the sacrifice of the servant leader or something like that, I think three or four weeks ago. And at the end of it, he really put the heavy on us. And he was kind of like, man, if you've got a problem with leadership or you got something you got to make up for or whatever, I suggest you go get it taken care of. And I got super weepy because I just, I'm a crybaby. You were going to introduce me like that. I'm a crybaby normally, but I got super weepy. And I got to lean back in my wife's ear and I said, because she's looking at me, she's like, what are you crying for? And I looked at her and I was like, this is the first time since I've been saved that I've heard a message like that, that I didn't have to go find a leader that I had undermined and repented in. And it was awesome. Because I had, had to, I mean, in my, I had to make amends with, and this is something I learned from the Lord, and when he, convict, when he convicted me of all of this in my heart and leadership, I went back to all these dudes and made amends. And that includes getting on a flight going all the way out to California as a broken, tearful man and just humbly begging this dude for his forgiveness and then coming back, which cost the money. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it was awesome. It was awesome to know that I didn't struggle with that anymore. It was amazing. So God will let us learn lessons the hard way our, our heart or our, our submission to our leadership is really a reflection of our heart towards God. And finally, we'll wrap up with this lesson three and the most important lesson probably that I've ever learned and I, and I keep learning is that uh, God gives us second chances. And sometimes third and fourths and fifths. It's truly awesome to know that we serve a God that when we screw up, He doesn't kick us out of the boat. He, I mean, He'll chastise us. He'll whip our butts at times, but He doesn't kick us out of the boat, man. He doesn't give up on us. And that's awesome. One of the, one of the, neatest, uh, one of the neatest accounts of Scripture uh, for me is the the relationship dynamic be between uh, the disciple Peter and Jesus. Uh, if you're familiar with it, you, you got to really put the story together through all the Gospels. But when Jesus first comes on the scene and calls uh, Peter, he says, "He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." And Peter follows him, and he does a lot of cool stuff. Peter gets to see miracles. The disciples are doing miracles. Peter's the dude that walked on the water, man. He was actually one of the big three disciples that Jesus spent the majority of the time with. Peter was blocking the roll. And then uh, up a couple weeks or a couple some time before Jesus got crucified, he pulls Peter aside. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, hey man, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no way. It's not me, man. And what happens? They, they arrest Jesus and they take him away to crucify him. And Peter denies the Lord three times. Not once, not twice, three times. As Christians and lovers of the Lord, don't we kind of think that that's like the ultimate trip? And Peter denied him three times. And they take Jesus away and crucify him and dies. I wonder what it was like to be Peter. Your Lord's dead and you just sold him out. I bet he felt guilty. I bet he felt alone. I bet he felt oppressed, marginalized, whatever. The bad, negative things are, I bet he felt it. I don't even know how bet he felt it. I know he felt it. Because I had to go through that, man. After a lifetime of just wrecked relationships, and I've given you just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip. There's a whole iceberg underneath. After a lifetime of wrecked relationships, I had to go through this process where when the Lord reveals to me that all these relationship failures boil down to war. 
this guy was at fault because I was just not mature enough, or I was operating my flesh, boiled down to me. That sucked, man. To know that I let the Lord down like that. I know exactly what it felt like to be Peter. But here's the awesome thing about this story. Well, this isn't too awesome. But so, so what does Peter do when Jesus is crucified and they bury him? Peter and some of the disciples go back to what they do. Fishing in the boat. You find him at the end of John, fishing in the boat, man. But the resurrected Lord appears to them on the beach. And this is amazing. The disciples don't realize it's Jesus at first, right? And when he calls out to them, Peter realizes, that's the Lord. And what's he do? Dude jumps out of the boat, dives into the water, and swims to the shore to Jesus. And I got to think that there was a couple of things on his mind. One of which was just a fall down and be like, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have denied you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I don't know that that happened. All I know is one of the best, best relationship dynamic, one of the best exchanges between Peter and Jesus ever happened at that moment on the beach. You're probably familiar with it. Peter goes up to Jesus and they're talking. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than me? And Peter's like, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus goes, feed my sheep. And he goes through that three times. Three times with him, he says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now, i got to think that there was some correlation between the fact that Peter denied him three times, and three times Jesus says, go feed my sheep. Which was a command, by the way. It wasn't a suggestion. Feed my sheep. Almost like Peter's getting reinstated. best thing was the very last thing that Jesus said to Peter on the beach. You know what he said? After all this, he looks at Peter and he says, oh, imagine this. Peter's mind. The very first thing Jesus ever said to him was, follow me. And after all of his denial and after all of that on the beach, Jesus still ends up the conversation with, follow me. Almost like he's saying, hey, want to restart? I'm okay with this. We can, we can restart. I'm not okay with what you did. He didn't ignore the fact that Peter denied him. But he's like, hey, man, I'm not kicking you out of the boat. We can start this thing over. By the way, you still got to follow me. i got a mission for your life. Follow me. And for me, that's, uh, that's super pertinent. Um, because, like I said, I took a, I took a while off the ministry getting involved in things. And if my wife and I were part of a church at all, it was just kind of marginally. In the last few years, I've grown up, and then all of a sudden, um, back in, in May, a little bit before that, um, Thomas decides he's going to leave the New Beginnings ministry. And they ask me, hey, man, you want to do the ministry? And it's almost like Jesus was saying, follow me.
And so there's literally nothing that we can do that I know of anyway that will, when, when, we're, when we're in the family of God, there's nothing we're going to do where he's going to kick us off the boat and be like, I'm done with you. And that's amazing to know. And, you know, I probably should have known this already, right? Because Philippians 1, 6, what does that say? It says, um, I probably should have memorized this one. Being confident of this one, of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Mm-hmm. When is the day of Christ? Christ comes back. What's that telling me? God is going to be growing us. We're going to be maturing all the way up until either we die or Jesus comes back. But the best thing about that is, is God is not going to stop. He will not stop. He is relentless and devoted to being a good parent and not leaving us as orphan children. And that's amazing to me. One last thing I'll share with you is just uh, my favorite verse, and that's uh, Psalm 145, 8-12. The Lord is gracious, and He is full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His work. All my works shall praise Thee, O Lord, and Thy saints shall bless Thee. They shall speak of the glory of Thy kingdom and talk of Thy power, to make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. We serve a pretty awesome God who's not afraid to let us grow up. He's not afraid to do miracles. He's not afraid to let us reap the consequences of our decision. But most of all, he's not going to kick us out of the way. Thanks for letting me share with you.